Hello and welcome to Going Viral, the podcast all about pandemics. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian and science writer. With so much focus on COVID-19, it's easy to forget that this is not the first time humanity has been confronted by a deadly disease. In the 18th century, the disease people feared most was smallpox. Caused by the variola virus, smallpox provokes painful blistering all over the body and used to kill one in two people it infected. It would leave these pock marks, but then it would also leave this very deep scarring for the rest of your life. As recently as the 1930s, about half a million Europeans a year died from smallpox. Its eradication in 1980 represents one of the greatest triumphs of medicine. In this episode, we'll be focusing on the English country doctor who in 1796 discovered a technique for vaccinating people against smallpox, a technique that gave birth to the modern science of vaccinology. This term vaccination comes from the Latin vacca for cow, then this later turned into vaccine inoculation, which then was contracted to vaccination. Edward Jenner was raised in a small village in Gloucestershire, and today his house and garden have been turned into a museum. The museum's been closed for most of the past year, so we asked its manager, Owen Gower, if he could describe it for us and explain the significance of Jenner's research for our present COVID moment. Dr Jenner's house is a quite beautiful house. It's a Queen Anne-style mansion and it's very much as Edward Jenner would have known it over 200 years ago. Uh, and then out in the garden, the wonderful grounds, which again are, are virtually unchanged, a nice sweeping lawn going up to a wooded area at the top of the garden. And hidden away in that wooded area is a rustic thatched hut which Jenner christened the Temple of Vaccinia. You have to come and see it, but it, it is what we consider to be really the the first pre-vaccination clinic in the world. So could you explain who Jenner was, what he did, and what makes his research significant today? Edward Jenner was a country doctor. He was born here in Berkeley, the uh, rural town on the banks of the River Severn, about halfway between Bristol and Gloucester. He was born in 1749. He was the son of the vicar, but both his parents died when he was five years old. And we know that as a child, he had this amazing curiosity. He was then apprenticed to an apothecary surgeon at the age of 14. He went through his training there, learning all the uh, the tricks that he needed to come back and practice as a country surgeon. But someone must have seen some kind of spark in Jenner. And so he was sent to London to train under the tutelage of the great John Hunter, and Hunter really took him under his wing, not just in terms of teaching him how to be a better surgeon, but also teaching him the value of experimentation. And I think Hunter was quite disgusted, really, when Jenner decided that he wanted to come back to Berkeley to be the country doctor. The two continued to correspond and Hunter continued to instill in Jenner this idea that he should, the, the words he used, why think, why not try the experiment? And so between the two of them, they continue to look at the world around them to try out different experiments. And that really led to Jenner's greatest discovery, which was the discovery of vaccination in 1796. At the time, how big a problem was smallpox? So why was this a subject that fascinated Jenner and that you know he wanted to study? Smallpox has gone down in history as one of the 
greatest killers of all time, one of the most horrific diseases of all time. And it's also known as a mutilator. And it had uh, um, roughly a 30% mortality rate. Those who survived were often left with significant lifelong scarring. And we know that Jenner himself saw significant outbreaks in Berkeley during the time that he was a country surgeon. There's, there's one case in 1778 where over 50% of the deaths in Berkeley that one year were the result of smallpox. And that's recorded in the church registers, which is, is completely unusual for the, the Berkeley church registers, at least, that the vicar decided to make a note that there was a significant outbreak. So Jenner was very much a, aware of this and was aware that this was something that people were suffering from. But I think also at the same time, Jenner was aware of the other techniques, the other advances in medical knowledge during this time. As a child, Jenner had been inoculated with smallpox, which at the time was the, I suppose, the gold standard medical technique for preventing people from catching smallpox. You couldn't treat smallpox. People tried all sorts of different things, but you could prevent it. And it was known that if you had contracted smallpox once, you wouldn't contract it again. So for perhaps hundreds of years in parts of Asia, parts of the Middle East, parts of Africa, this practice of inoculation or variolation was being carried out where people were being deliberately infected with a supposedly mild dose of smallpox. They would have it scratched into their arm, pus from a smallpox blister, or they would have the infectious scabs of smallpox patients ground up and inhaled through their nose. And this practice was brought into Western medicine by Lady Mary Wortley Montague in the 1720s, and also into the United States via an enslaved person named Onesimus. And so this practice of deliberately infecting people with smallpox was something that Jenner himself had experienced and known, but it was also something that was considered to be not entirely without fault. We know that it wasn't always reliable. We know that there were outbreaks of smallpox directly as a result of this inoculation. And Jenner, I think, having experienced it, wanted to try and do something a little bit different. Do we know what age Jenner was when he was variolated and, and whether it did protect him from smallpox? It was when he started school. I think he was about eight years old. And certainly it provided him with the protection against smallpox. But also it was something that is said to have really affected him throughout life. He found the whole process to be incredibly traumatic and suffered from night terrors and, and other psychological troubles for, for the rest of his life because this process wasn't just a, a simple case of we're going to scratch in some some fluid, but the way that it had been westernised, all sorts of other pre-treatments and other techniques and technologies had been introduced and had changed it into being this, this very big process that you had to go through to be variolated in, in many cases. Well, yes, perhaps this then does explain why he was so keen to find a better method, a, a surer method, one that's more easily tolerated. Absolutely. And I think Jenna also had seen another solution. It's said that in the early years of his training as an apothecary surgeon, he came across some dairymaids, some milkmaids who were just in the field looking after their cows. And Jenna said to them, you do know there's an outbreak of smallpox in the town. You need to get yourself 
variolated, you need to have yourself protected. And the milkmaids replied to him, oh, no, sir, sir, we don't need to because we've already had cowpox and we know that we will be protected from life. I mean, that's the apocryphal story, this idea that Jenna met these milkmaids at a young young age and carried this story throughout life. But we know that in his early years as a surgeon, he was thrown out or people attempted to throw him out of some of the local medical societies because he kept going on about cowpox. So he had seen this idea that I think a few other people around the world had also noticed at the same time that people who had contracted cowpox once believed that they would be immune from smallpox. And cowpox was a very similar disease, but specifically, as the name suggests, was a disease of primarily of cattle that could be transferred to humans through direct skin contact. So it was a disease that was considered to be something that would really affect dairymaids, would affect farmers. And they would have a few swellings, they would feel a little bit unwell, but crucially, they would be left without any significant scarring. And so the legend was that dairymaids, milkmaids would have these wonderfully fair complexions because they would never contract smallpox. The smallpox was known as the speckled monster because it produced these horrible blisters all over the skin and face, which left you with scarring. Absolutely. Yeah, the effect of the smallpox, because of the way the virus reproduced, the tissues it seemed to prefer, it would leave these pockmarks, but then it would also leave this very deep scarring, particularly around the face, the arms, for the rest of your life. Of course, this is all before anyone really has any understanding of a virus or, or what it might be. This is simply based on empirical observation of the disease and people's kind of responses to it. I mean, nobody, Jenna doesn't know what a smallpox is. You, you can't even visualise it. There's, there's no microscope that can see it, is there? No, I mean, the name smallpox it is the symptoms. It describes the outward appearance of the disease. It doesn't necessarily describe the variola major or the variola minor. A virus. Jenner knew that there was this disease affecting people, but he didn't really understand anything about germ theory. That came much later than him. He didn't understand viruses. He was just seeing that this one thing seemed to provide protection against this other thing. And so he decided to put that to the test through what counted at the time as being a rigorous scientific experiment. What did he do once he latched onto this idea? How did he demonstrate that cowpox could provide protection against a human disease, smallpox? The most famous experiment is the one that he conducted on James Phipps, said to be the first person to be vaccinated by Jenner. But actually, Phipps is, is case number 17 when Jenner came to write up his work. He first went out and tried to find different cases where people had believed that they had contracted cowpox and then believed that they had come into contact with smallpox and had not caught it. So he went through various different farmers, different dairymaids, people who could tell him these anecdotal stories about their experience of cowpox and smallpox. But of course, that wasn't enough to be able to prove anything. It just said that people had this idea. It allowed him to form a hypothesis, but he knew that he would have to put it to the test. And so on the 14th of May, 1796, Jenner took material from the 
blister on the hand of a milkmaid called Sarah Nelms, and he scratched it twice into the arm of a boy called James Phipps. Phipps was eight years old. He was the son of Jen's gardener. But crucially, Jenna knew his medical history. He knew that he had neither contracted cowpox nor smallpox in his life. So Jenna knew that this could be a rigorous test. He waited to see how the experiment progressed, how the disease took. And he noted that after seven days, Phipps started to feel a little bit uncomfortable in his armpits. He started to have some swelling. Then on the ninth day, he started to have a headache. He was a little bit feverish. But then on the 10th day, he made a full recovery. So Jenna had demonstrated in that first part of the experiment that you could pass cowpox not just from cow to human, but from human to human. You could deliberately infect someone with cowpox, much in the same way that you would deliberately infect someone with smallpox as part of the variolation technique. And then he waited a few weeks. He waited until July, and then he decided that he would deliberately infect or attempt to deliberately infect Phipps with smallpox. He would attempt to variolate him. But Jenna found that it didn't take. The disease didn't take. Phipps did not contract smallpox. And then Jenna waited another couple of weeks and then he tried again. He tried to infect Phipps with smallpox. And again, Phipps did not contract smallpox. And Jenna believed that that had proved beyond all doubt that cowpox provided protection against smallpox. These are what would today be called challenge experiments where you deliberately challenge a human subject with the disease to see if they're protected. I think we should point out that this couldn't go on today. Uh, It's not considered ethical. I mean, you could do challenge experiments with with animals. You you can't risk giving a a potentially deadly disease to someone without being sure they're protected. Um, So James Phipps, was he uh, smallpox free for the rest of his life? Yeah, and a lot of people want to know what happened to James Phipps and whether he perhaps resented Jenner in later life. What we do know is that Phipps thrived. He lived a very long life. He actually was one of the pallbearers at Jenner's funeral. So I, I don't think that he bore any malice to Jenner in, in life. They continued on friendly terms. And, and also Jenner really kindly gave Phipps a house for life in his will. So the house that we now call Phipps's Cottage is in Barclay. It's just down the road from the museum. He lived a long life. When we first started talking about having a Jenner museum in Barclay in the 1930s, people who had met Phipps were still living in the town. So I think, you know, the, the stories of James Phipps have passed down into, into local legend. And certainly we know that he very much thrived and didn't contract smallpox. I think Jenner was quite keen to publish straight away. He he had done this one experiment. He believed that that would be enough to encourage people to immediately drop the idea of variolation. But of course, when he went to the Royal Society, they they came back to him and said, you need to do a few more experiments. We'd like to see this tried again and again and again. And so he had to wait for another couple of years. Cowpox was not a disease that was always present. It came like smallpox. It came in waves. And he spent a couple of years trying to find another reliable source of cowpox. And then at the start of 1798, he was able to carry out about a dozen other experiments with different people, including his own son. He attempted to infect them. Well, he infected them first with cowpox. He vaccinated them. But then he attempted to infect them most of the time with smallpox. He wrote up all of these notes. And then at the end of 1798, published the book that he called An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of the Variolae Vaccinae, 
which is mostly found in the county of Gloucestershire. And he published this himself. He self-published, but he also tried to send it out to people that had influence because Jenna was, after all, a, a country doctor operating out in the sticks. And he knew that he needed influential supporters, particularly within London society, to get this idea accepted. Can you just tell us a little bit about then the reception to his 1798 book where he publishes, you know, a series of experimental proofs? I think the the reaction was mixed. I think Jenner had hoped that it would be universally accepted. Uh, and in many ways, it was. It was certainly something that people found fascinating. People wanted to read the book. They wanted to talk about it. We even know that Jane Austen wrote that she had read the book and they had a conversation about it with her family after dinner. But this idea of, of actually getting it accepted into the medical elite proved to be a lot harder. They were suspicious of Edward Jenner. They mistrusted the country doctor. And also they had been, it's fair to say, they'd been making quite a lot of money from the practice of variolation. And so Jenner was coming along proposing a much safer alternative, telling people to stop variolating. And I think there was an element of professional jealousy. I just want to ask you about how, you know, uh, the general public viewed this new procedure. I'm thinking in particular of um, James Gilray's famous satirical engraving called The Wonderful Effects of the New Inoculum also known as the cowpox tragedy, because in the picture you see uh, people who've been um, inoculated sprouting cow horns and cow appendages. This idea that putting a foreign material from an animal into our bodies is somehow unnatural and dangerous. It goes all the way back to Jenner's vaccination, doesn't it? Absolutely. And these ideas, they may have been present in some of the population. I think as well, there are some members of the clergy who are opposed to vaccination because they see it as being against the natural order of things, who are preaching to their congregations that they should resist this new vaccination. But the actual ideas of the cow horns, the way that this is portrayed in that Gilray satire, it starts with the medical profession, which I just find so incredibly bizarre. What Gilray's engraving shows is that there's this very deep-seated idea that it's somehow unnatural to put biological material into us. You could argue, actually, there's nothing more natural than it. I mean, the milkmaids prove that. They were naturally immunised, and all that Jenna was doing was reproducing that in a more controlled way. I think as well, people were broadly supportive of anything that helped them to escape the ravages of smallpox. And I think that's something else that perhaps we we talk a lot about in the context of how we respond to vaccination in the modern time is, is that actually we haven't seen these diseases. And so actually when you, you don't see these diseases, you become somewhat complacent. Whereas I think the people who were broadly accepting vaccination in its initial years were those who it affected, those in communities who had been ravaged by smallpox, those who saw the evidence of smallpox every day through their friends and loved ones who may have been left with the lifelong scarring. And I think they jumped at the chance initially to receive this vaccination that Jenna said would save their life from smallpox. And it's only later that we start to see the more widespread mistrust 
amongst the general populace when it almost flips to the medical profession accepting it and the populace becoming more hesitant of it. Whether some people who paid for smallpox vaccines or the general always insist that it should be free at the point of need or on the basis of need rather. I think he saw a vision of a world free of smallpox, but in order to achieve that vision, he felt that everyone would have to be vaccinated. And so in order for everyone to be vaccinated, he knew there shouldn't be any obstacle. There shouldn't be any reason why people shouldn't be vaccinated, and certainly cost should not have been an obstacle. And so he practised what he preached. He sent out samples of his vaccine material. Whenever he found a reliable source of cowpox, he would be writing to people, not just in the UK, but around the world. And I think the other thing that's really crucial to note about Jenna is that he didn't see geopolitical divides in the way that his contemporaries saw them. Jenna once wrote to a group of French scientists saying, the sciences are never at war. And so Jenna was very happy to communicate with anyone who was interested in vaccination, regardless of of where they lived, what their, their political allegiances were. And so he started to put into practice all of this. And he continued to do that through his own vaccination practice in the garden of his house in the Temple of Vaccinia, where on church after Sunday, people would come and queue to receive vaccination free of charge. There's a description written by a friend where Jenna says that he loves to be standing amongst the people at the Temple of Vaccinia, like a faithful priest looking for a crowd of expectant worshippers to come and to gain the benefits of vaccination. And we know it was popular. There are accounts of people snaking out of the garden, going down down the high street in Berkeley and queuing up to see Jenna. And I think that's the other crucial thing about Jenna's practice of vaccination was that he didn't want to be a mass vaccinator. He didn't want to go on an international vaccination tour, come and receive vaccination from Edward Jenner. He wanted to write to people around the world so that they could practice vaccination in their own local communities, in the areas where they had a trusted community that they could work with. And Jenner certainly was very keen, everyone that he wrote to, he was very keen that that this vaccine would be free of charge. We know there are some cases where people were attempting to hoard it, were attempting to to dominate the supply of vaccination. But actually, those people, when there were smallpox outbreaks, they tended to to lose heart. They tended to to see the bigger picture and wanted to move from from a paid-for model of vaccination to the model that Jenna originally had envisaged, which was one where vaccination would be free of charge to everyone. I, I'm struck by this phrase you use in um, your, your article, that he considers himself the vaccine clerk to the world. Absolutely. And he said that he spent up to six hours a day hunched over paper, writing to people, corresponding with people. And he did all of that really from his home in Berkeley. He spent some time in Cheltenham. He had another house in in London for a very brief period of time. But Berkeley was his main residence and soon became the centre of a network of people carrying out vaccination around the world. Yes, I love this phrase from this letter where he writes, on average, I am at least six hours daily with my pen in my hand, bending over writing paper till I'm grown as crooked as a cow's horn and tawny as whey butter. 
he certainly had a way with words, writing to people with that wonderful language of, of Edward Jenner, not, not just a scientist, but a science communicator as well. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, because we're reading a lot today, of course, about people who distrust vaccines, a vaccine hesitant, or whose heads have been filled with all sorts of outlandish conspiracy theories from anti-vaxxers. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate about how should scientists or, or the health workers who are administering the vaccine, how should they persuade people and address questions that people have about vaccines? And this was something that Jenner apparently was also very focused on. You cite his friend, uh, W.J. Joyce, who said that the doctor, meaning Jenner, very well understands the art of dealing with the prejudices of these people. And it gave him, Joyce, great pleasure to observe the gentle and effectual manner with which he endeavoured to soothe their mind. So do, do we know more about how he's put people's fears to rest? I think purely because he was their doctor. He was someone that they knew, someone that they had grown up with. For many of them, he was someone who had position in the town. He was also the town mayor as well. And so I think would have been very well known by people. But he had, I suppose, an excellent, we'd call it a bedside manner now. He, he was very comfortable talking to patients, didn't want to just rush through things. He wanted to take the time to listen to people, to talk to them, and to, to really ensure that this message was something that was accepted. Well, there are perhaps uh, lessons that we could learn then from Jenner in communicating vaccination for COVID. Yeah, it's everything in Jenner's method of ensuring that his vaccine was, first of all, was was accepted in the local area, but also then spread around the world and accepted by people in locality. It all comes down to this idea of Jenna not going about doing a huge vaccination tour himself, but relying on people who could work within their communities to talk directly to people that they already knew, people who were already within their care as, as the local surgeons. And so that model of, of having people who were trusted and respected within their community talking in terms which could be accepted culturally. I think we see that all the way through the history of smallpox vaccination. And indeed, I think we see that now as being the encouraged way of sharing news about vaccination. So the term vaccination comes from this story, doesn't it? Can you tell us about that? So this term vaccination comes from the Latin vacca for cow. Then this later turned into vaccine inoculation, which then was contracted to vaccination. And so this term vaccination was initially used just for smallpox vaccination. But then 100 years later, when Louis Pasteur was carrying out his research into new things which could be considered in the, the, the spirit, if not necessarily directly related to the work that Jenner was doing, Pasteur then said, I'm going to call these vaccines, I'm going to call this vaccination in honour and recognition of what Edward Jenner did. Can we ever know how many lives Jenna saved? Smallpox, we know in the 20th century alone, killed 300 million people. And that was with vaccination being practised in, in many parts of the world. So if you can imagine that carried forwards to, to now, it's just beyond comprehension. We can talk about Jenna saving countless lives. And we know that Jenna's ambition, Jenna's vision of a world free of smallpox came to fruition in the 1970s. In 1969, the World Health Organization launched an intensified eradication program. And that year, I think there were still some 27 million deaths from smallpox in 1969. But again, following that pattern of 
people working together, this idea of global solidarity, but also trusted health workers adapting messages for their locality. These huge teams of health workers from the different countries where smallpox remained endemic went around and they started this process of ring vaccination, which is vaccinating people within a certain defined radius. And the idea was that smallpox has no animal reservoir And so it's only a disease of humans. If you can stop that transmission human to human to human, you can stop smallpox. And by 1975, we saw the last case of variola major, the more feared form of the disease, which caused the worst symptoms. And that was a little girl in Bangladesh. In 1977, we saw the last natural case of variola minor, a man named Ali Malmalin, who was working as a, a hospital porter in Somalia. In 1978, very sadly, we saw the last outbreak of smallpox in the world, which was the result of a laboratory incident in Birmingham in the UK. And very sadly, a medical photographer named Janet Parker died of smallpox during that outbreak in Birmingham in 1978. But after that, there were no more cases of smallpox. And then on the 8th of May 1980, the World Health Assembly passed a resolution that the world and all its peoples have won their freedom from smallpox. Smallpox, the first and to date the only human disease to have been completely eradicated. And that's as a result of the work that Edward Jenner started in his little hut in Gloucestershire in the 1700s. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. I can visualise the garden, the Temple of Vaccinia, uh, this beautiful bucolic setting. Just be lovely once this is all over to come and visit you there and see it for myself i do hope we can welcome you then so mark we've just heard all about edward jenner the father of vaccination now you've been involved in a vaccine trial for novavax and i wanted to get an update on that mark and and hear how it's going can you fill us in it's absolutely fascinating you know hearing owen talk about the beginning of the science of vaccination. So back then, of course, it was all very rudimentary, uh, taking pus from a cowpox sore on the hand of a milkmaid, and then, you know, putting it in a lancet and inserting it. We've come a long, long ways from that, I think. (laughs) And, you know, one of the exciting things about participating in the trial of the Novavax vaccine is Novavax is using yet another new technology. It's really the cutting edge of of, of vaccinology. Uh, It's called a subunit protein vaccine. It's a different technology, again, from the mRNA vaccine. So it's really quite exciting to participate in this scientific experiment and this sort of this journey that we've all been going on over the last two, three hundred years or so. Because, you know, there are so many vaccines now that we all benefit from. You know, we will all have been immunized as children against measles, mumps and rubella and against other diseases that we no longer experience. So for me, this is not only a great advert for vaccines and vaccinology, but it shows how much more there is to learn about vaccines. So yeah, I'm very pleased to be participating in this wonderful scientific experiment and journey of discovery. When we last chatted, you had just done your second, I believe, second jab. Is that correct? So ever since I enrolled on the Novavax trial, as time has gone on, it's been increasingly frustrating not to know, right? Not to know if you've had a vaccine that protects you from the coronavirus. You know, should I change my behaviour or should I just continue on assuming that I'm not protected? And then, of course, quite a lot of people started 
being offered the AstraZeneca. Yes. The final straw for me was when one Saturday I opened my front door and I saw my next door neighbour who is almost exactly my age coming back from the local vaccination centre. He'd been invited to get his jab. Oh, no. <laughs> and he was in the same GP practice and everything. I called them back another time. So I explained to him, look, the only reason I've been so anxious is because it's only when you invite me formally that I can go back to the trial team at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital and tell them I've had the offer, now can you unblind me? But when I called back and they said, before you ask whether you want to be unblinded, I need to tell you something. This was the doctor who's heading up the trial uh, at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. And what she said is Novavax have had very good results and that they're about to be granted a license by the Medical Health Regulation Agency to allow them to distribute the Novavax vaccine in this country. Not only that, but they've guaranteed that they can deliver enough vaccine for everyone who's taken part in the trial. So that's 15,000 people in the UK who've participated in this trial. It's one of the biggest trials of a vaccine anywhere in the world. They said, rather than unblinding you, would you be willing to participate in a crossover trial. So what it is, is that they want to continue their trial and they want to continue to collect data from me uh, and other people. But of course, they realized that it would no longer be ethical to keep people randomized to a placebo in a situation where there's still disease circulating and other members of the community, the population, are being immunized with AstraZeneca and other vaccines and therefore are being protected. How can you ask people like me and other people participating in the Novavax to continue to take this risk? Yes. So the way the crossover trial works is that you still remain blinded. So that maintains the integrity of the trial and the data they're collecting. I already had two jabs of either a placebo or a vaccine. But on March 30th, they invited me back to Chelsea and Westminster for a third jab. If I've already had the vaccine, then this third jab will be a placebo. If, on the other hand, in November and December, I had the placebo, then when I went back on March 30th, I would have been given the Novavax vaccine, the first jab. And I now have a, a fourth appointment, right, to return to Chelsea and Westminster on April the 30th when I will receive a fourth and final jab. And that fourth jab will either be the vaccine, or if I've already had it, it will be another jab of the placebo. Right. <laughs> you are protected, aren't you? Either way, you are protected is the point. Exactly. So the point is that the end of this long process, by April the 30th, I am guaranteed to, at some point between November and April, to have received two doses of the Novavax vaccine. I just don't know in which order. So it, it could be that I've been protected since December, or it could be that I'm only just now starting to benefit from the immunisation of the vaccine in March. So no regrets, Mark. Je ne regrette rien. <laughs> Very good. Thanks for listening to Going Viral. You can find us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod and on Instagram at goingviral underscore the podcast. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, and my producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. This has been Facts and the Facts.